Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is John Kiriakou, and I'm here, although not actually physically here, still together with my co-host, Michelle Witte. Get ready to go against the grain. Michelle, how are you feeling today? I can see you right there. <laughs> you can see me? Yep. Great. I should, uh, I should log on to, uh, to Rumble. Hey, uh, I got to tell you, I went home last night and uh, thought, I'll take it easy. It's hot. It was miserable. And then I, I got the push notification of this Trump raid, this FBI raid on Donald Trump's home at Mar-a-Lago. And, um, you know, we're getting it in bits and pieces. It's just so fascinating to me. Uh, first of all, the president, the former president is complaining. Eric Trump apparently was at Mar-a-Lago at the time and said that the FBI ransacked the place. I think that's probably true. Um, you know, I've had my home raided twice by the FBI, and the first time they were very, you know, polite about it. The second time they just tore the place apart. They even dumped my potted plants out on the floor. God knows what they were looking for, but they, they really do ransack the place. And then he complained that they even broke his safe open. Uh, they gave me the option of opening the safe for them or they had crowbars. They were prepared to break them open. So I, I believe Donald Trump when he says that they tore the place apart. Um, now, a former Trump aide was on MSNBC this morning saying that all these Trump complaints about the raid are for show that uh, that Trump um, believes that any publicity is good publicity, that this is going to make him more popular, that this is going to rally his base. And uh, and then Andrew Yang came out saying, you know, I don't like Donald Trump, but this is really the wrong way to go about things. What do you think? How how do you see this this raid? Do you see it as necessary, unnecessary, helpful to Trump, unhelpful to Trump? But I don't know if I can weigh in on whether it's necessary or not, but I don't think that Trump is making a mistake uh, in making a big deal out of it. You know, I think it does. It certainly it helps him further his case that he is being persecuted and that this is unfair. Um, people have also said, you know, this could actually be less about whatever these documents are and his treatment of them and more about ensuring that there are more legal hurdles to him running in 2024. So, you know, whether the raid was justified, you know, I, I'm not really, I don't really want to say, but I do think, I don't think that Trump is making a mistake in how he's um, handling it. And I do think for people who already support him, uh, it's not going to do him any harm. It just makes him look like he is being persecuted. And it is also true that, you know, the other side of the aisle has has given him a lot of this evidence, right? With the, you know, promoting Russiagate extremely heavily for the entire four years he was in office, which turned out to be just a whole lot of nothing and uh, impeaching him every time he turned around. And so, you know, it, it like it, it definitely clouds, it clouds things enough so that even all of these sort of legitimate investigations into how how he handled the responsibility of being president uh, can also be neatly stitched into this narrative that like the swamp hates Donald Trump and they'll do anything to keep him down. You know, there are precedents for this kind of thing, not necessarily with a president, a former president, but 
uh, John Deutsch, who served as CIA director under uh, Bill Clinton, took classified documents home with him. He knew exactly what he was doing. He stole these classified documents, hundreds of them, uh, in order to help jog his memory so he could write his memoir. He was caught. He was charged with a felony. Uh, in the course of a plea negotiation, it was knocked down to a misdemeanor. He paid a fine and gave the documents back. Uh, Sandy Berger, who was the national security advisor under Bill Clinton, did the same thing. He wanted to write his memoirs. So he went to the National Archives, got permission to go into the classified holdings room. When he thought nobody was looking, he stuffed classified documents in his socks and in his underwear and walked out. Of course, they were looking because there are cameras everywhere at the National Archives, and he was charged with a felony. It was knocked down to a misdemeanor, and he paid his fine. Uh, they seem to be accusing Donald Trump of doing the same thing, taking these classified documents home. What I don't understand is why they would send an army and FBI of FBI agents to raid the House when they didn't send an army of FBI agents to raid Hillary Clinton's house uh, and they didn't do it uh, for John Deutsch or Sandy Berger either. I think that the Justice Department has played right into Donald Trump's hands on this. Yeah, it could be that that's the case. I mean, you know, again, I, I, I'm quicker to assume Donald Trump is guilty of any crime you might suggest than I am to assume that he's innocent. But that <laughs> right. doesn't mean that they haven't done exactly what you say. Um, you know, th earlier this week we were talking about uh, Alex Jones, and uh, it's just been a really bad week for Alex Jones. Well, it gets worse. Uh, the Daily Beast is reporting today that the attorney for uh, the family of the child of one of the children killed in uh, the Sandy Hook massacre, um, the attorney told uh, the Daily Beast that those thousands and thousands of text messages that he was accidentally sent by Alex Jones's attorneys contained nude photographs of Alex Jones's wife. Uh, the reason why this is important and controversial is that Alex Jones had texted these no nude photographs of his wife to Roger Stone. And there's oh. no indication that Mrs. Alex Jones knew about it or gave her permission for it. Is this the current Mrs. Alex Jones? Is there a current Mrs. Alex Jones or is this his ex-wife? Yeah, this is the current Mrs. Alex Jones. Her name is Erica Wolf Jones. And uh, she's not talking. But uh, the attorney, um, whose name is Bankston, I don't remember, Mark Bankston, went on the Young Turks last night and said, you know, this, this may be a revenge porn kind of situation here. So he's turning it over to authorities. He's also already turned over all of these text messages to the January 6th committee. Uh, like I said, it's, it's been a bad week for Alex Jones. I mean, it's, it's very possible that she knew about this and didn't care, right? It's, you know... F uh, Oh, All of us in, enjoy a little bit of sleaze, right? But uh, I'm not sure, you know, whatever. Uh, icing on the cake, right, of, of these uh, these text messages that have accidentally been shared. Um, but, yeah, either, either way, pretty embarrassing, I would think, for, for Mrs. Alex Jones. That's kind of, that's kind of a bummer. Yeah. Hey, John, do you want some um, some probably important news that is unfortunately bad? Uh-oh. Yeah, tell me. 
Did you see this um, notification from after the show yesterday that Russia is suspending some of its requirements under the START treaty, which as far as I know, tell me if I'm wrong, it's the last remaining nuclear yes. treaty that we have. Yeah, this is with the last Russia. one. That's right. This is the last one. So Russia said it, it was going to suspend the on-site inspections that the U.S. is allowed under the treaty, uh, pointing to Western sanctions and also the coronavirus. Uh, but the Russian foreign ministry says Moscow remains committed to all provisions of the treaty. It's just not going to let the United States verify them in the way the treaty set up to verify them in the past. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it, they're saying this is temporary. The START treaty basically holds the U.S. and Russia to certain a certain limit of intercontinental range nuclear weapons and allows the countries to inspect each other's stocks. Right. So eliminates the verifiable part of the treaty. Um, we have only this left because Trump pulled out of the INF treaty, which prohibited ground launched missiles that could reach a certain range. Um, and so, you know, I mean, Russia is saying they're not going to violate the treaty. They're just not going to let U.S. inspectors poke around anymore. Uh, you know, wh whether that's going to turn out to be true or not, who knows? But I think the, you know, equally important is just um, the the continued erosion of this relationship and the shutting down of, you know, ch channels of communication and any, like, you know, confidence building and trust building exercises that yeah. we had been engaged in. And I think we should, you know, that's that's worth at least noting as it floats by, right? Yes. As we are sort of carried on this current toward perhaps a, a larger confrontation. Agreed. Uh, you know, this is bad all the way around. I have to say, even as an American, I don't blame the Russians for doing this. Um, neither side has respected these arms control treaties, whether they've been in them or been out of them. And the Russians have every reason to uh, to blame sanctions and travel restrictions. So I, I don't blame them. Maybe once this conflict is over, uh, we can start negotiating real and verifiable arms treaties again. That would be kind of nice. And I think that it would be a good thing uh, politically for, for both sides. Just my opinion, though. I wanted to... Uh, on the topic of being sort of uh, carried, born toward conflict. This is just a quick one, John. But yeah. I did want to note, uh, one of the things that we missed, right? We, we've, been, of course... Uh, Followed in a lot of detail the fallout from Nancy Pelosi's yeah. trip to yeah, Taiwan. Really and we talked about the conversations that uh, China decided in the aftermath of that trip that it was going to suspend. Uh, Zach Siegel, who we've had on the show before, who writes a lot about um, the opioid crisis and substance abuse in the United States, notes that uh, shutting down cooperation channels on transnational tr crime and counter-narcotics this is about fentanyl trafficking. Yes. So, you know, even the most American of problems right now, this sort of opioid opioid crisis that we kind of assume is confined to the American heartland, even that's going to be affected by this by this uh, foreign adventure that Nancy Pelosi decided to engage yeah. in. I thought even that also worth pulling that out and looking at it. And, you know, this came just one day after um, Customs and Border Protection announced the biggest ever uh, interception of fentanyl in American history. They stopped a shipment with 1 million fentanyl pills uh, as it was crossing the border from Mexico yesterday. And, you know, a lot of the, a lot of this fentanyl comes from Mexico, but originates in China. It goes from China to Mexico and then they bring it across the border from the South. So you're right. This puts us in a very bad position. 
very bad position. I wanted to say also, I love Alaska Airlines, right? I, I, it's the best way to go from Washington National Airport to LAX because it's the only nonstop from DCA. Uh, you don't have to go all the way out to Dulles Airport. And it's just a, a comfortable, pleasant, really great um, airline. I even have mm-hmm. the Alaska Airlines credit card. I like them so much. Well, a couple of uh, days ago, uh, two men filed a lawsuit against Alaska. This is very upsetting. Um, these two men, uh, both Americans, both Muslims, by the name of Abu Bakr Durar and Mohammed Alamin, Americans, they boarded a flight from Seattle to San Francisco. Uh, they were seated in first class. And they began speaking to each other in Arabic. Somebody else in first class saw one of them texting in Arabic. Well, that can only mean one thing. They're going to blow up the plane, right? Because they're Muslims. Of course. Of course. So what else do they talk about? Exactly. So somebody reported them to one of the flight attendants. The flight attendant removed them from the plane saying that they had a ticket issue. We don't know what that means. A ticket issue. Once they were off the plane, they were surrounded by law enforcement. Um, They had to turn over their phones. Then the text messages were translated into English. They were utterly innocuous, just like any text messages we might send. And uh, they were put on separate flights later in the day back to San Francisco. So they've filed a a, a human rights uh, lawsuit against Alaska Airways. And of course, Alaska refuses to have any comment other than the usual offensive. Our greatest responsibility is to ensure that our flight operations are safe every day. And that includes with uh, complying with federal regulations on investigating any passenger safety report. You know, so offensive. I'm so disappointed in Alaska for doing something yeah, that like is, this. Yeah, that is really shameful. Really awful. You had a couple of other stories that, uh, well, you know what, before- I we, did. I just, have, I just have Olivia Newton-John exclamation point know, here I in the script. I feel so bad about this. <laughs> so you know, there was a thing in the, New, in the New York Post today. I've always loved Olivia Newton-John for the same reason that everybody else does. Um, Because she's so cute. She's cute, and she just seemed very sweet, and she was friends with the Bee Gees, and I love the Bee Gees. Um, But the New York Post today said that when she was diagnosed for the second time with breast cancer in 2017 and was told that she was stage four, which means that it's, it's spread throughout her body, she began selling off her vast real estate holdings and transferring the money into a foundation to research breast cancer and to research um, plant chemistry that can be used to fight breast cancer. I thought that was a really Mm. wonderful thing. Yeah, that is. Yeah, she was, she was a lot of fun to watch. I mean, I, you know, I watched Greece probably actually a million times in my childhood. Uh, And so, yeah, you know, R.I.P. Olivia Newton-John. She brought a lot of people a lot of joy. Yeah, John, I do have a couple other stories. One where I get to rip uh, the Washington Post fact checker Glenn Kessler yes. a little bit. Please do. I always I've like always hated do. that guy. Yeah, man, he's a real scumbag. 
but I know we have our next guest uh, here on the line, and I do want to talk about Antony Blinken in Africa. So maybe we'll save some of these stories for a little bit later. What do you think? Sounds good. All right, let's take a quick break here on Political Misfits. Uh, we're going to come back and talk about what Antony Blinken's saying and what he actually means on his trip through South Africa, the Democratic Republic of Congo, and Rwanda. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C., and we'll be right back. Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou, and we are going to talk about the new strategy that U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is taking with him on his trip to Africa, which has nothing to do with Sergei Lavrov's trip through Africa about a month ago and is really very brand new and not just like our past coercive policies. Absolutely. Joining us to get into this brand new way of dealing with the African continent is Jackie Lukman. She's co-host of By Any Means Necessary right here on Radio Sputnik, and she is also an author and an activist. Jackie, thank you for being here. Old boss, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <That's> exactly. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having me on, guys. I got to be clear from the start. Anthony Blinken is not in South Africa to counter Russian and Chinese influence. His visit has nothing to do with Sergei Lavrov's visit last month and will dictate Africa's choices. So I want everyone to get that out of their minds right now. The U.S. Department, the State Department says so, and I don't see why we should question them. And so, you know, just days after the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. told Uganda that countries are, quote, allowed to buy grain from Russia, but they better not buy oil, uh, Uganda says it's not going to buy cheap Russian oil despite the cost of living crisis it's going through because it doesn't want to face more sanctions that will only make Ugandans suffer more. But that is not dictating, right, Jackie? Uh, what what would we call that? Dictating? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it's, there's really no other word for it. I mean, the U.S. Uh, government, as usual, is talking out of both sides of its neck. It's, you know, pretending to uh, approach uh, relations with countries that it, it doesn't want to engage in any kind of uh, trade deals or have anything to do with its so-called enemies, and in this case, it's Russia, and by extension, China as well. Uh, they're going to these African nations with the um with the facade of of a diplomatic olive olive branch and that's blinken's little speech in south africa saying you know oh you know the rest of the world has dictated to africa for too long and we we should stop doing that but then sends linda thomas greenfield to uganda to literally dictate to africa um uh look you can only buy things that we approve 
we, the United States, approve you to purchase from Russia. Uh, and if you run afoul of what we approve you to purchase from Russia, we will sanction you. Uh, and interestingly, um, the U.S. puppet dictator in Uganda, uh, Yawari Museveni, who I swear is not some, you know, pan-Africanist revolutionary. He is literally a U.S. Uh, imperialist puppet in the country of Uganda on behalf of the U.S. and its allies. Even he tweeted that, you know, <laughs> if the U.S. doesn't want uh, us to be, uh, uh, you know, if the U.S. really wants to help Africa, he said in his tweet, they should consider separating us from the sanctions in a war where we are not participating in him. When he tweeted that, he actually tweeted a picture of himself and Thomas Greenfield. I mean, the shade coming from the continent, I think, is pretty epic right now. It's pretty clear. Um, I want to talk more about uh, Lincoln's speech in South Africa and the responses from South Africa's foreign minister. But I, I want to just touch on what is being said about this new strategy uh, before we get there. So we got a White House fact sheet about it. The fact sheet says uh, the new strategy represents a reframing of Africa's importance to U.S. national security interests, which is sinister. Um, but apparently... The four parts of this reframing are uh, we're going to foster openness and open societies. We're going to deliver democratic and security dividends, which is an interesting juxtaposition there, because I think democratic dividends and what we describe as security dividends are really often in um, opposition to each other, especially as or as the U.S. practices them. Um, in this aspect of the new strategy, we get the line that reducing the threat from terrorist groups to the U.S. homeland, persons and diplomatic and military facilities is a big part of it. So sounds to me like AFRICOM is going to be ramping up, which, again, usually uh, counter-democratic. Uh, anyway, in addition, we are going to support pandemic recovery and economic opportunity, and we're going to support conservation, climate adaptation, and a just energy transition. And a Guardian story notes that Part of the delivery of this strategy seems to be appealing directly to ordinary people in Africa rather than their leaders by promising support for democracy and accountability, which, again, considering our history of attempting to thwart the wishes of the African people when it comes to choosing their own governments, it is incredibly cynical. So I wonder... Jackie, you know, breaking down the strategy a little bit, what is new about it and how we are going to both uh, somehow uh, focus even more scrutiny on um, Africa in terms of our own national security and yet at the same time supposedly foster democracy there? I mean, this strategy isn't new. It's just, you know, being um, offered under the Biden administration as opposed to uh, the Trump administration, as opposed to the Obama administration. Any uh, strategy in regard to Africa that the U.S. and its allies uh, are involved in is a strategy of exploitation and domination. And I'm glad you mentioned AFRICOM because that whole security piece, uh, democracy and security piece, that screams the expansion of AFRICOM. 
uh, and and which only means more repression of people's movements in opposition to AFRICOM and U.S. and Western imperialism uh, and resource exploitation on the continent. So expect more of that. This idea of pandemic recovery, economic opportunity, and uh, supporting conservation and climate after I mean, if the United States was going to do any of those things, they would have done it, right? Yeah. Where we have... Yeah, you know, where where we're looking at, as opposed to China's involvement on the continent. Now, I I am not saying that China and even Russia are involved in any of their dealings on the continent for altruistic reasons. But what I do know is that they recognize that the continent of Africa has resources that they need, and they're willing to pay for those resources. So... China is extending the Belt and Road Initiative and uh, investing real money in real infrastructure on the continent, in different countries on the continent, to improve the lives of African people, paying for the resources that they want. Russia is doing to some degree the same thing. And the United States is coming in with more empty platitudes that just, you know, a a different, the the blue facade on mm-hmm. uh, U.S. imperialism. Um, so this policy, it's not new. It's just more rhetoric, um, the same rhetoric for the same policy that uh, is now just an extension of the new Cold War that's uh, warmed up to a proxy war against Russia, where the U.S. is uh, <clears throat> punishing, is intending to punish African nations that do, that do not go along with this ridiculous not strategy uh, and have any kind of warm relations with Russia. Let me also talk to you about um, the, the context, right, of, of Russia, Ukraine and the, the conflict there, because, you know, a, a lot of the subtext here for this visit is the amount of pressure the West feels able to put on African countries to toe the line when it comes to Ukraine and condemning the Russian war there. And uh, some of the comments that African Minister of International Relations Naledi Pandor made yesterday in her press conference with Lincoln, I think should raise some alarm bells. Uh, Pandor said, hey, look, you know, we we in South Africa, we abhor war. Uh, We just as much as the people of Ukraine deserve their territory and freedom, the people of Palestine deserve their territory and freedom. And we should be equally concerned about what is happening to the people of Palestine as we are with what's happening to the people of Ukraine. And she said, you know, we have not seen an even handed approach and these different approaches by the international community to different conflicts sometimes leads to cynicism about international bodies. That was her language. Um, And so to me, this is potentially even a larger issue than the proxy war underway in Ukraine, right? I, I have been talking recently uh, about, you know, the history of sort of U.S. Uh, foreign adventures, right, where we go off and do something uh, cowboyish and deadly, and the other powers that are on the receiving end say, hey, we should maybe talk about this. There are, there are international fora designed for conversations that are supposed to allow negotiation and reduce the possibility of conflict. And over and over, the U.S. just uh, refuses to engage unless we are in a position to completely manipulate the conversation and the outcome. And so I wonder if this comment by um, uh, Pandor about cynicism means that countries are on the verge of, of giving up 
And, you know, I would say as flawed as the UN can be, it surely represents at least a goal for global conversation and negotiation and efforts to avoid conflict. And so I wonder if you think these comments about, you know, just witnessing year after year, decade after decade, um, some human rights be treated as uh, more important than other people's human rights, uh, should set alarm bells ringing that maybe countries are, are really considering the, uh, all of these multilateral platforms uh, as poisoned. And, and we should consider what happens if countries really do decide to, to give up on, on using these multilateral fora for negotiation. Yeah, I think we're definitely at that point where uh, the United Nations is viewed as almost as illegitimate as the United States is viewed, uh, in, in particular because of the way the United Nations has not uh, used its authority to defend the people of Palestine. And I think it's interesting that it, it was the South African foreign minister uh, who made that comment. And she made that comment in uh, in her in her wider comments kind of criticizing the uh, countering malign Russian activities in Africa Act, this U.S. Uh, piece of legislation that was uh, introduced by Representative Gregory Meeks of New York, Democrat of New York, African-American Democrat of New York, by the way, and, and pointing out the fact that uh, for some of our partners in Europe and elsewhere, she said, there has been a sense of patronizing bullying. You choose this or else. And the recent legislation passed in the, U in the United States of America by the House of Representatives, we found a most unfortunate bill. And that is the way that the, the, the South African government sees the way the United States uh, operating in regard to its country and many countries on the continent and around the world. But this is also the way they see the way the United Nations interacts with people around the world. So because the United States, as we know, is basically the, the United Nations is basically the 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 head of the United Nations. Right. Uh, so the 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 U.N., does the U.S.'s bidding, and the rest of the world is really quite tired of both of those actors literally dictating to the rest of the world, um, you told that you told our line or else we will punish you. I, I don't think the rest of the world is wanting to continue to play this game. And I think the South African foreign minister made clear what has been uh, said uh, probably behind closed doors amongst themselves in many other countries around the world uh, up until this point. I think quite literally we're seeing the birth of uh, a multipolar world that the U.S. and by extension the United Nations has been trying to avoid happening for decades. Yeah, I mean, I think you've, uh, you've just answered this, Jackie, but, you know, considering, again, the shade coming from the president of Uganda, who, as you say, is not hostile to U.S. interests. Uh, he's pretty subservient to them. And also, you know, uh, uh, Pandor very specifically choosing to raise these issues. Uh, I wonder how much success you think Blinken is going to be able to have in doing what he says he's not doing, but is definitely doing and trying to counter, uh, you know, to, to stand in the way of Russia and China developing deeper relationships on the continent. Do you think that ship has just has totally sailed? 
I mean, I think there will be among some uh, African leaders like uh, Museveni, I think that he is going to play ball with the U.S. to some degree. He is going to toe their line to some degree. I think even though his tweet was funny and and actually kind of accurate, I, I mean, the fact that he is a puppet uh, of the U.S. is is still uh, the truth. And I don't think he's going to depart from that aside from his little tweet. But I don't think that is true with many other African nations, particularly the uh, African nations that abstained from voting to condemn the Russian military response in Ukraine. Uh, and, and that's what all of this is about. That's what, that's what this tour is about, Blinken's tour, Linda Greenfield's tour. That's what the uh, countering malign, uh, um, you know, relationship in Africa uh, uh, bill is about. That's what all of this is about. The U.S. government and the Democratic Party bringing or trying to bring African nations to heal uh, and to get them to turn on uh, Russia as a viable uh, trading partner and by extension China because they will be the next target in these kinds of activities from the U.S. But as you say, Michelle, that ship has sailed for many African leaders and many leaders of other countries around the world. And I don't think there is really anything that Anthony Blinken, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, Joseph Biden, or anybody in the U.S. government can do to stop it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's going to be an, an interesting transition to watch, right? It is already. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask you about before we let you go, Jackie, is, you know, Blinken is going on to visit Rwanda and the Democratic Republic of Congo to supposedly try to prevent more hostilities and open conflict between the countries. And I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about what is happening between the DRC and Rwanda and whether the U.S. can be a trusted interlocutor between them. Well, considering that it was U.S. interests that uh, fueled the conflict between the two countries in the first place, that propped up uh, uh, Paul Kagame, who is a butcher, as a legitimate leader uh, now and, and continues to do business with him, considering uh, the man is a, a war criminal. Uh, of course not. We cannot trust the United States to be uh, a decent or, or trustworthy uh, interlocutor between these two nations because the U.S. involvement in this region is all about resource exploitation, and that means exploitation of the people. Uh, and, and this is going to continue. Whatever a uh, peace deal is uh, worked out between the, the leaders of these two nations. The winner in that deal will always be U.S. and Western uh, multinational corporations that are going to continue to be given carte blanche to operate in those countries with impunity, exploiting the resources, uh, oppressing and exploiting the people and their labor, and that will only continue to fuel unrest and opposition from those people against those corporations. So this cycle will continue. And the only way it will not continue is if the U.S. gets out of uh, the DRC and uh, um, Rwanda, and if the multinational corporations get out of those countries, and those leaders that are in those countries 
uh, that are friendly to those interests are also given the boot. That was the great Jackie Lukman. She's co-host of By Any Means Necessary on this very station on Radio Sputnik. Jackie, great to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Hey, John, do you want to hear one more um, bummer headline before we take a break? I'd love to. I mean, that was actually not a but that was I do think uh, I do think this process of, of countries deciding that actually they can um, that they can afford to step away from the United States and that they can afford to exercise their own sovereignty and say no. Sometimes I do. I, I actually I don't think that's sad. I think that's good, Agreed. and I think it is certainly going to be interesting to watch. So let's just say I'm going to add a bummer headline to the conversation we already had. Um, here it is, John. Rainwater everywhere on Earth, unsafe to drink due to forever chemicals, study finds. Absolutely. Rainwater. You Come know, on. There was a, You're going to take rainwater from us? Something as, yeah. As, so this, as this, necessary as rainwater. There was a piece in the Washington Post today, too, saying that scientists are worried uh, because for the first time in the Washington area, the water is begin to, beginning to turn brackish. Uh, uh-huh. And then yeah. what the heck are we going to do? Yeah, I guess, you know, learn to drink salt water. Drink salt water. No, exactly. Th- this story sort of combines two trends, right? The story, of course, is about PFAS, which is this family of human-made chemicals that don't occur in nature, right. but hang out there forever once they arrive. We've talked about them in connection with the Red Hill fuel disaster and uh, lots of other uh, stories because they are everywhere. Um, the chemicals became popular because they have nonstick or stain repellent properties. And so they were put into a lot of household items and then escaped into the environment. And so what happens is universities of Stockholm researchers found these chemicals in rainwaters in most locations on the planet, uh, including Antarctica. Oh so it means God. they have spread, but also the more we can continue to study these chemicals, the lower our uh, safe thresholds for consumption drop, right? Because the more we learn about them, the more we understand how dangerous they are. And then regulatory bodies decide, oh, well, you, actually, you should have fewer parts per million. You should have actually near near zero consumption of these chemicals that are everywhere. And so the study concluded that based on the latest U.S. guidelines for these chemicals in drinking water, Rainwater everywhere would be judged unsafe to drink. That, uh, I don't know, man, just tells Absolutely. you just how far these things can go and just yeah. how like dangerous it is to to just sort of release these things into the atmosphere without really understanding what they actually are and what they're going to do and what their life cycle is going to be. So, Absolutely sorry, John, terrible. but I felt like I had to tell you that sad story. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We're going to take a little break here and come back uh, to talk about the reactions in some state houses around the country to the Dobbs decision. And uh, I think there's going to be I think there's going to be some more bad news in that conversation coming up, but maybe also some good news along the lines of that Kansas vote recently that we saw. So we'll see what is in store for us in just a second. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We are live in D.C. and we will be right back.
Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. The backlash from the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade is spreading all across America. In just the last two months, 23 states have either banned or severely restricted abortions, and in some cases, they've even banned the procedure in cases of rape, incest, and danger to the mother's life. A handful of these states have seen their abortion bans bottled up in the federal courts, but at the end of the day, the bans are likely to still just go forward. With that said, we've seen some surprises. Kansas voters handily defeated a constitutional amendment that would have allowed the legislature to ban abortion there. In Pennsylvania, a pro-choice Democrat is strongly favored to win the governorship. And Alaska, a Republican state with a strong libertarian bent, passed legislation to protect a woman's right to choose. For pro-choice Americans, the ongoing fight, though, is an uphill battle. We'll discuss what happens next. We're joined by Kim Keenan. She's an adjunct professor at George Washington University and former general counsel of the NAACP. Welcome back, Kim. Hi there. So glad to have you back. Thanks for joining us. So let me ask you first about the the obvious fallout from abortion bans. We're already hearing stories about women in Texas and Florida not being able to receive life-saving treatment in Indiana. Now we all know the ten, the story of the 10-year-old rape victim who had an abortion and then the attorney general of Indiana ordered an investigation of the doctor. Is this going to be commonplace now around the country, do you think? Are we going to be seeing more and more stories ab- about uh, about pregnant women and doctors who are who are supporting uh, their right to choose uh, being targeted by by the government? Oh, yeah, Ugh. absolutely. This is this is it. This is real. And I, I'll be honest with you. I think this is the very tip of the iceberg. I mean, if a 10 year old who's raped can't have an abortion, who can? And what does it say about who we are as a society that the rapist gets to, you know, live their lives? Yeah. Year old is not able to even make a choice about her body. I mean, so it says that you know what happens to you. Just suck it up. I mean, it's up. You know, just suck it up. You're ten. You know, it's okay. You're going to bring a new life into the world. I mean, that is just so. It just seems like something from um, Handmaiden's Tale. Yeah, it does. Seems like it's just not even real. I I think there's going to be a lot more. And I'll tell you why. The laws they're so focused on preventing abortion that they haven't thought anything about all the things around it. And these poor doctors, you know, you think people are going to wake up and say, "Gee, I want to be a gynecologist obstetrician so that I can be put in jail like a drug dealer for ten years because I make a judgment call to save a woman's life, but." Maybe possibly I could have saved the baby. You, Amazing. You think the answer is going to be to that? Uh, I think I'll be an anesthesiologist. Right. Um, so I think we don't. I think the ramifications are so far into the future, and in those places that have chosen to just go so draconian. I mean, did, I'm trying to remember the guy's name who said, "Not your body, not your choice." Who? Are these people and where do they come from? You know, we've got we've got political figures, too. We were just talking about this on the show the other day, like uh, uh, this Aiken, this former congressman from Missouri that was talking about legitimate rape. Do you remember this a few years ago where, well, if it's a legitimate rape, 
then the body has a way of shutting itself down so that it, that there won't be a pregnancy. It's like, what planet do you live on? Like, do you, you can't actually believe this stuff, right? Hey, they live on the planet without science. Yes, without science. That's right. That's exactly right. Can you explain how um, lower federal courts are able to freeze some of these new laws when the Supreme Court said that states could ban abortion? We, we've seen freezes, for example, in West Virginia and in Utah and in Florida. I don't understand exactly what arguments are being used to, to freeze these trigger laws. Can you explain that to us? I believe some of these laws are overbroad and they go beyond intended to do. And um, I think, you know, when you when you start to get into uh, really, really, truly violating privacy in a way that that people can almost understand it, because some of these people cannot, um, I believe that what they're doing is they're making due process arguments and basically saying, look, you know, if you undo all of this this way with with no, you know, nothing in place to make sure that people are properly protected, then we have to freeze these. Because I, I do believe some of these trigger laws are so, so overbroad. I mean, let, you know, everybody's saying contraception's next. So, I mean, so you, you can't have contraception. Pretty soon it'll be you, you really can't have sex unless you're married. Well, I was going to ask you as a follow-up, because I think you're exactly right. Contraceptives have to be next as part of this conservative debate, what about sodomy laws? You know, it was only recently that Texas finally rescinded its sodomy law. Now with, uh, with the likes of, uh, of uh, Clarence Thomas saying in his opinion that we should revisit all of these so-called privacy decisions, isn't that the next step? Yeah, it's coming. It's coming. This is nuts telegraphed it early because, you know, there would have been people who said, oh, it's just about abortion. And, you know, everybody's uncomfortable. Everybody's uncomfortable with abortion. Nobody. Let me tell you something. I mean, I'm not I'm not saying necessarily there aren't people like this, but but the average we're talking about the average American. Nobody's comfortable with this decision. Right. You don't you don't just say, well, you know, I'll just get an abortion. It's, you know, people. it's not like it's Monday. I'll just go. It's more of a this is such a personal decision, such a life impacting decision that, you know, we can't just, um, you know, take this away from people and not consider all the circumstances that people might have to take into account. And again, a 10-year-old rape victim, I mean, no matter how you feel about life, what you're really saying is you care more about the life that's coming than the life that's here. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, what could the White House do with presidential executive orders? We've been hearing about this in the news, uh, that the Biden administration is planning to issue some of these executive orders. But what effects might they have? I, th- I think the key is to stem the tide of just this wash over to this extreme. You know, um, you know, America is like a really big boat. I know I use this analogy a lot, but. America's like a really big boat. If you try to swing it left or swing it right really, really fast, you turn it over. So I think the president's role is to set the tone. You know, yes, okay, 
the people in the Supreme Court have said X about what we can do and what the states can do, but we can put a lot of executive orders in place to make sure that there's like a, a orderly pace, a orderly, um, you know, how things get done and orderly about how we treat doctors. I'll be honest with you. I really feel like doctors are really the ones who are bearing the brunt of this. Every time I open a paper, somebody's investigating or prosecuting. There's been a couple prosecutions of doctors, we, we, okay, we've gone too far, right? Because if we are going to snatch medical decisions from the people who train for years and years and years to be doctors and put it in the hands of people who are either bureaucrats or um, zealots, of somebody, then, then why even have a medical degree? I have to agree with you. You know, just last week, uh, the governor of Florida, uh, uh, DeSantis, suspended the uh, the Tampa state's attorney because he said he would not prosecute women who have abortions and he would not prosecute the doctors that that perform those abortions. He that that prosecutor had a uh, an op ed in today's Miami Herald uh, saying that this is all about politics. It's not about. It's not about life. It's not about uh, morality. It's not about the family. It's all about politics and rallying the conservative Republican base. And uh, he was predicting exactly what you're predicting, that rather than to settle the the issue, it's opened up a Pandora's box that we're just not going to be able to close. Right. Right. And, 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 and let me ask you this. What, what do you want your district attorney prosecuting? Do you want him prosecuting, you know, 10-year-olds and 15-year-olds right. and doctors who've been serving, delivering babies since time begotten? Do you really want to send—I mean, these sentences for these doctors are like 10 years. You, you can carry—Brittany Griner didn't get 10 years in Russia. <laughs> That's right. I'm a, doctors 10 years for performing procedures that could have potentially saved the life of the patient. I mean, how crazy. He's, he's right. I mean, you know, I feel so bad for him. I mean, you're the prosecutor saying you're not going to prosecute things. is not exactly what you're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. How brave is he to stand up and say, I'm here to protect communities and enforce the laws of the state, the, law, the, the laws that were meant to preserve and support communities, not laws that are going to tear us apart and rip away. I mean, I, I think they're going to start to see it, too. I'll tell you, I, I just talked to a doctor the other day. She says, I can't even, I, she's like a top urogynecologist. She can't even get people to be in her internship. They're going to have to create some something where they give them like gold to do it because they're, they're risking their whole future the day they make that choice. Yes. Yes. I think that's right. Sorry. I don't interrupt, but this is on top of a a, a nursing shortage, right? This is on top of a a, teacher shortage crisis in our uh, healthcare system sort of exacerbated by the pandemic. So I think this is, you know, adding this strain to a shortage of medical professionals already is uh, really foolish and is going to affect far more people than, you know, people seeking abortions and the doctors that are providing them. Yeah. Good point. Again, 
talk about Pandora's box. Pandora means we, we it isn't it's no longer just about this one procedure. It's about the whole medical system. It's about the whole um it, actually it's about our whole society net because everybody's spending all their time focusing on these these, you know, making sure that these procedures aren't performed. But boy, once these babies get here, you don't hear anything about them anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, Isn't that the truth? Worry about that. What happens? What happens to the kid that the mother is forced to have the baby? Forced, you know, to now have a child. It, it, they don't just run to the. You know, you're not going to just give away your baby the day it's born. I mean, there's so many things that come up, or so many things that can happen. I mean, there's just so many circumstances that that the average community isn't designed to respond to and react to. And I, the day some of the, you know, right to life people come out with this place and plan and loving home children, I have to say, then maybe I'll be thinking to myself, well, okay, well, that has some, that makes the whole thing make sense now because they care about life. But the truth is, all they care about is that women have these babies. Well, Barney Frank used to say that for the Republican Party, life began at conception and ended at birth. Because once the baby is born, they never wanted to talk about daycare and Head Start and, and nutrition and any of those important issues, especially for the poor. And I don't think any of that has changed since the 1980s when he said it. Nope. So those kids better be able to have some great bootstraps because they're going to be going to be literally all by themselves trying to pull themselves up from nowhere. If they're lucky, they'll have great family members around them, all those grandparents and aunties who step in. That's right. The world will not be waiting, welcoming with them and open arms. They won't be able to compete and, you know, go to the right school and the right camp and the right, you know, all the things that kids we truly need to grow up to be their very best. So those things won't be waiting for them. You see, it really does take a village, whether they like to admit it or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to ask you about this case in Nebraska. There was there was a report in, um, well, in several different outlets uh, today. We, we got it in an Iowa paper where a teenager is going on trial as an adult for concealing the stillbirth of her child, her mother's being accused of helping her to get an illegal abortion. I can't even believe I'm using those words, illegal abortion. Uh, the baby was uh, born uh, a stillbirth and uh, she's being charged with a whole variety of crimes. Do you think that this is what we should expect to see from now on? Like police investigating women's miscarriages. Is that the next step? It's all part of their Pandora's box, boys. The box gets bigger every time we go ask, ask another question. The box gets bigger. This is outrageous. First of all, at this age, making a sound decision is already at risk, right? So, um, you know, you know, maybe, um, you know, she she wasn't thinking this through, or maybe some things happened. But, the, but the, is this a crime? Are we really? You know, did she intentionally plan to miscarry a baby? I mean, you know, that's that's a lot, a heavy thing to accuse a person of. And what is that investigation going to look like, right? Seriously. Expose uh, something that happened to her as a teenager to every human being in her community, right? Because we got to investigate it, right? We're really going to start putting people on trial for this. Um, then we've got to, and now, you know, you can't 
commit, I mean, if you prosecute her, then you've got to prosecute her mother. That's right. Yeah. And then you're going to have to prosecute everybody else in a situation like this. So instead of going after the murderers and the robbers and the drug dealers and the carjackers, you're going to go after teenage girls. Sorry to cut you off, Kim. Uh, Kim Keenan, thank you for joining us. Kim is an adjunct professor at George Washington University, and she's the former general counsel at the NAACP, which I think is fantastic. You're listening to Political Misfits here on Radio Sputnik. We're going to take a break and come back at the top of the hour. Stay tuned. back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with my co-host, Michelle Witte. A team of FBI agents yesterday raided former President Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate in Florida, apparently searching for classified documents that Trump allegedly took with him when he left the White House. Former Trump staff members have said that at the end of his presidency, Trump flushed some classified documents down the toilet just off the Oval Office. He tore some in half and threw them away. They were later retrieved and taped back together again. And he took some of them with him, purportedly to write his memoirs. Of course, that would be a felony violation of the Federal Records Protection Act and possibly even the Espionage Act. Conservatives have taken a predictable approach. They're shouting that the FBI is a part of a deep state plot to stop Trump from becoming president again. And they're saying that Joe Biden is personally responsible for the raid to distract the American people from focusing on the travails of his son, Hunter. Either way, such a raid is unprecedented in American history, and the Justice Department is rapidly approaching a fish or cut bait moment. Will they really indict a former president on felony charges? In other news, we told you last week how Alex Jones's attorneys had accidentally provided two years worth of Jones's text messages to attorneys representing the parents of a child killed in the Sandy Hook massacre. The text messages were damning for Jones, who was soon ordered to pay the family $42.5 million in compensatory and punitive damages. Well, yesterday, the family's attorney provided those text messages to the January 6th committee. The committee has been very interested to know what Donald Trump told Roger Stone on January 6th and then what Stone passed to Jones. This is going to get interesting. And finally, Virginia's Republican governor, Glenn Youngkin, is being sued by a nonprofit ethics group after the pro-Trump governor established an anonymous tip line where people could call who were teaching, quote, divisive subjects, unquote. This is the second such suit brought against him by teachers or watchdogs. Youngkin refuses to disclose any information about what tips have been received, what his administration plans to do with the tips, and even what the words devices, divisive subjects mean. The governor has steadfastly refused to release any of this information, even through the Freedom of Information Act. We're joined by Kevin Gastala. Kevin's a journalist and writer for Shadowproof.com, and he's the co-host of the podcast Unauthorized Disclosure. Good to have you back, Kevin. Hey, it's good to be talking with you. Kev, uh, let's walk through this raid, which is truly unprecedented. A whole team of FBI agents went to Mar-a-Lago with search warrants, and according to Donald Trump, they even broke open his safe. 
They're reportedly looking for classified documents that Trump took with him at the end of his presidency. And I want to preface my question to you by saying that I am no Donald Trump fan, but this treatment is far different, it seems, uh, from the way the Justice Department treated Hillary Clinton during the investigation into her emails. Does that matter in this case? Do Republicans have a point that this is favoritism and prosecutorial misconduct? What I'll say first is that I kind of feel today like I'm locked in a funhouse of mirrors mm. and there's all these people who are saying things that I don't think they would normally say if not for this event. So we've been treated to, for the past 12 to 14 hours, Republicans calling for the abolition of the FBI. Imagine. Which, great. I'm on board with that. Me Given too. what I know about how it is acted as an institution – from murdering Fred Hampton here in Chicago, yep. where I'm based, um, to all sorts of other examples from the COINTELPRO era uh, on to the early days of J. Edgar Hoover and uh, up to uh, the modern era when uh, Ashcroft was using it to round up people after 9-11 Muslims, mm. keep, keep them – in uh, detention. So fine. The Democrats are singing the praises of it as an institution, as like a bulwark of saving our our, our democracy. Uh, that's not exactly new. They were doing that when Trump was president, but it's back. It's really brazen. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm not really down with that either, even if I can find a justification and, and, and see what the FBI did as uh, as acceptable, as legitimate as with uh, a good, solid foundation. Um, but I'm in this bizarre place where uh, right before I came on the show, I saw a news headline that says Andrew Cuomo is advising the president that they need to come out now and they need to make a big statement about what just happened with this raid so it doesn't look like a political tactic <laughs> to take down Donald Trump. And as much as I think he's scum of the earth, that's actually something I was planning to say when I talked with you about this, because what I'm concerned about is, is as you say, you know, we have some evidence of the politicization of the FBI being anti-Trump, um, at least skewing anti-Trump. I'm not going to sit here and pretend it's not a conservative organization, but there were numerous investigations into Trump throughout his presidency that I think alters the culture a little bit as far as keeping your hands off uh, of a president. I'll stop there. It is very rare that the FBI conducts a raid and then does not follow up with criminal charges, except in the case of Kiriakou versus Bamford et al., which I'm very proud of and is coming to a federal court near you soon. Uh, do you expect? some sort of charges to come out of this. I, I mentioned earlier in the show that uh, John Deutsch did this after he was Bill Clinton's CIA director. Sandy Berger did this. Did When I say this, I mean what Donald Trump is being accused of. Uh, after he had been Clinton's uh, national security advisor, they mishandled classified information. They stole classified information that they took with, with them after they left government. And they were given uh, uh, fines and misdemeanor convictions and told not to do it again. What do you expect to happen? Well, there better be something definitive that we get from all of this. I, I gather that the FBI has been winding up, uh, either this office that conducted the raid has been winding up, 
or the entire Justice Department has been winding up to it. We'll hopefully learn more details in the coming weeks. But I think it behooves the entire government to be transparent about what just took place, uh, just because uh, right now the Republicans in the Senate, I've been following this because this goes along with what I tend to pay close attention to when it comes to whistleblowers. Um, And Chuck Grassley and others are livid because of the fact that they have found evidence from whistleblowers in the FBI that uh, there there was false – that that, that basically they tried to discredit and make false claims about derogatory information related to Hunter Biden and that 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 actually happened – Um, And so there's questions about the way in which the FBI has been handling investigations that are already politically – like really extremely politically sensitive investigations. I mean we're talking about investigating the son of a presidential candidate, now the president of the United States. And so – so, so I, I think there, you know, there better be something. I've been seeing that it could be that they try and disqualify him from office using the Presidential Records Act. There's a lot of focus on the classified information element of all of this, um, and I think that gets into sticky territory because I, I believe we're going to learn a lot about what a president can and can't do, and what our courts are going to enforce or not enforce because. Supposedly, if you're president, you're supposed to be able to just declassify, like just on a whim, say like right. this is this is declassified now. But on the other hand, taking the documents, which are supposed to be part of a historical archive, and also maybe potentially hiding them, concealing them, destroying them, I don't think that that's covered by you declassifying classified information. That. That information, and if I can bring in the ethos of like a Julian Assange and WikiLeaks to this, that information belongs to the people. So no president should ever be able to just take documents with him to his home, to his condo, to his yacht, wherever he wants to take them and uh, keep them from all of us. It's supposed to go in the archive for us to access later. Um, ideally, I would like to get them sooner. And the problem of overclassification is a real one. And yes, I'm it is. open to any kind of conversation people want to have. Uh, the last thing I'll, I'll squeeze in here is just to say I have tremendous sympathy for those who were prosecuted under Trump for violating uh, – for, for, for leaks of classified information like Terry Albury. Yep. Uh, Daniel Hale had his begin. Um, he was actually um, uh, raided when Obama was president. But it continued under Trump. I think yes. he was indicted under Trump and then um, reality winner. I have tremendous sympathy for all of them who look at this and say, you know, look, um, it's about time that somebody in higher office is held accountable if they are mishandling records. Yeah, I think you're right. And, you know, I'm like you. I'm all for uh, the quick declassification of information. And like you, I believe that overclassification is a very serious problem. There's a there's a way that you go about doing this. You can't have a president just on a whim say, well, I'm going to declassify that because I want to fold it up and put it in my pocket and take it with me to my house. But I'm not going to declassify all this other stuff. That's just not the way it works. There's a process by which a president would go through to declassify this information. And then it's available to everybody, to scholars, for example. Uh, It should be uh, posted. Uh, at the National Archives or um, on the websites of presidential libraries. 
that's the way it's done. You can't just decide, you know, you're going to you're going to tear some of it up and throw it in the toilet next to the Oval Office. And some of it you're going to tear in half, which Trump staffers tell us was a very Trump thing to do, where he would tear stuff in half. And every day they'd say, Mr. President, you can't tear those documents in half because they fall under the Presidential Records uh, Preservation Act. And so they would have to fish them out of the garbage and then tape them back up and send them to the National Archives. You can't do stuff like that. You can go through the declassification process. And then once it's declassified formally, you can go back to review it for your memoirs. But you can't do it the way Trump is being accused of having done it. Uh, And John, I don't know if you've seen this part of the story that's coming from the New York Times, but I find this incredible just given my history of covering these types of things. But apparently Trump would rip pictures that intrigued him out of the president's daily brief. Oh, my God. And then um, he maybe he took them to Florida. They don't really know. Apparently, one example that they have is that in 2019, he took a highly classified spy satellite image of an Iranian missile launch site. He declassified it, and then he put that photo on Twitter. Oh so that's how God. we saw that. Oh, my God. Listen, for, for people who don't know, uh, the president's daily brief is a 12 to 20 page uh, book that is prepared overnight by the CIA and with the input of the rest of the intelligence community prepared overnight for briefing to the president at 7 a.m. six days a week, Monday through Saturday. Uh, it is literally the most highly classified uh, document that is produced by the federal government because it goes only to the president, the vice president, the national security advisor, his deputy, the director of intelligence programs, the secretary of state and his deputy, the secretary of defense and his deputy. That's it in all of the CIA director in all of government. Those are the only people who see this thing. Um, It's so highly classified that the briefer who's a senior CIA officer, senior foreign or senior uh, intelligence service, they can't leave a copy with the president. All of the copies have to be returned every day. When I was writing for the PDB, Um, The president would sometimes ask questions in the margin and the briefer would come back. You'd get a call, come up to the PDB's uh, director's office. You go up to the seventh floor and he'd say, the president has a question. Here's the question. You get a photocopy just of the question, not even of the piece that you wrote, because you may have been cleared just for the, the that one day, you know, to report on the information. And then you answer the president's question, but to tear a page out of it and then <laughs> to post it on Twitter. I mean, people go to prison for the rest of their lives for doing stuff like that. Yeah, it's like a kid with like a like like an ex, like a X Games biking uh, magazine and they're going to put like skateboarders on their wall that right. they can watch later. It's, 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 it's very uh, adolescent. Um, and I know you wanted to uh, veer in another territory, but yeah. the, the interesting wrinkle to all of this is him claiming that he had declassified these documents. Apparently, he told Breitbart earlier this year and the proper markings that are on on it like that's indicated it's classified just hadn't been removed but i just find this so troubling 
just because that's not how this is supposed to work. And he he may have something that he wanted to reveal to the public that he believes the government was doing to him. And by all means, fill us all in to the war that was going on against you if that's how you see yourself as being persecuted. But uh, that's our information. We get to access it. It doesn't go in your safe. Exactly right. And declassifying a document doesn't mean that you just shout out to whoever happens to be within earshot. I'm declassifying this and then you just, you know, do with it what you want. That's not how the process works. My God. Let's switch over to uh, to Alex Jones, Kevin. Um, it's been a very bad week for Alex Jones. He lost the first of at least three lawsuits brought against him by Sandy Hook parents. He was humiliated in court uh, with the revelation that his attorneys had accidentally turned over all of his text messages for the last two years uh, to the to the attorney who uh, who is suing him. And now those text messages have been turned over to the January 6th committee. Um, Besides this latest revelation by uh, the Daily Beast that the text messages included nude pictures of Jones's wife that he texted to Roger Stone. And we know all about Roger Stone and his sexual proclivities. Um, What exactly was Jones's role in January 6th? Is this whole thing more about Roger Stone or is the committee actually interested in Alex Jones? What should be we be looking for here? I would ask you, who do you think is the bigger pathological liar, Alex Jones or Roger Stone? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, because I'm not sure I believe anything that either of these men say about their role in anything. Roger Stone flat out lied about WikiLeaks and what was coming from the Clinton campaign emails and got Julian Assange in trouble and wouldn't shut up. And uh, then uh, that that put the crosshairs on uh, WikiLeaks and Assange as, as, as a Russian cutout or played a role in it, played a huge role in it. And, uh, and the same with Alex Jones, you know, him claiming the president tapped me to lead the January 6th marches and to be there um, uh, to, to lead people from your rally to the Capitol. And he talks about having a front row seat and that he's doing it on behalf of Donald Trump. But is that true? Right. I don't know if I can believe him. After watching that uh, trial that just unfolded the with the Sandy Hook families, um, uh, and and the, I don't. Did you watch the clip where the judge advises him on uh, telling the truth in court? Um, he can't. He can't stop telling lies. He can't stop doing what he does on his Infowars yeah. program. And he thinks he's doing like a radio show for his audience the whole time. So I don't know. I'm not sure that I believe anything. And I don't know that he really was a part of January 6th any more than anybody else who has just been charged with misdemeanors or, uh, you know, minor crimes for being present there at the moment. Yeah. Yeah, I I would agree. Uh, Former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo is meeting with the January 6th committee today. We know from recent books by former Trump staffers and a book that's coming out right now by a by a, well two journalists, one from the New York Times, one from the New Yorker magazine, that uh, Pompeo advised Trump to concede the election, and Pompeo was prepared to resign after January sixth. 
Um, this seems like an important meeting, this meeting between Pompeo and the committee, if only because Pompeo was Secretary of State and CIA director, right? Like Henry Kissinger. But it also seems that if he had really explosive information to provide, a hearing would be scheduled in prime time, carried on all the networks uh, for, for all of us to see. Why do you think the committee is interested in hearing from him? I just think that Mike Pompeo's managed to fly under the radar, and that's uh, unfortunate. He's n- no less detestable than any of the other yeah, characters seriously. we've been introduced to. Uh, he's a Christian reconstructionist who believes in bringing about the end times, and I think that he was willing to pursue U.S. foreign policy in a way that would bring about that. Um, and also, uh, one of the things he did in his final days as a secretary of state for Donald Trump is continue to ingratiate himself with Trump and to uh, to show he was a loyalist and try to position himself as the successor who would take over and continue the Trump project next. Um, I, he's lied about losing weight, which is just really crazy to me. Yeah, like he's right. been telling people that he didn't get a surgery, that he just naturally lost right. his weight. But I know he that that's out. not possible. Um, So there's something psychotic uh, or psychopathic about that. And the other thing that happened in the final days that I wrote about that sort of went completely uh, ignored, but it was kind of a scandal, was he took over Voice of America and he used it to deliver uh, what what members who who worked there. um, You know, this is so this is kind of like. uh, you know, instead of like Russian state media, the U.S. actually has its state media and its Voice of America. But when they were there, um, he was actually forcing people who were employees to sit there and listen to him uh, give a speech that puffed up the Trump administration. This was on January 11th, uh, so five days after January 6th events took place. Um, And he just said a lot of things that were supposed to cement the Trump legacy. And then there was an objection from uh, people within uh, the, the these institutions that run Voice of America, there was a big backlash. There were whistleblowers, and then it was a, a a huge deal. So, anyways, just to make the point here that like, what's interesting about him is he's positioned himself as like an heir to continuing the Trump project. Uh, yeah, I have to agree, um, Kevin. It seems that the country is mired in a culture war that we couldn't have foreseen even in the 1990s when we thought we were at war with each other culturally between abortion, LGBTQ rights, trans sports, and now this thing called patriotic history, which is driving me crazy. There's no telling where we're going to go as a country in Florida. Governor Ron DeSantis is seeking to make it illegal. I mentioned this yesterday in the show to teach children that George Washington and Thomas Jefferson owned slaves, let alone that they were cruel to their slaves. Um, Even in Virginia, which many of us had fooled ourselves into thinking was a blue state, there's this fight now over teaching divisive issues. Um, Do you think this gets worse? What does worse look like even? And how is it resolved? Does it have to be resolved in the courts? Yeah, uh, this is definitely uh, a, a cultural rift. Uh, when you when you say patriotic history, I'm reminded of the uh, the 
plethora of Bill O'Reilly and Laura yeah. Ingram and, and oh, other yeah. so-called history books that riddle like you just oh, find them throughout. There's just so many of them. If you go inside a thrift store in any red state, uh-huh. they're just there from all the people who read them and then discarded them. And, and none of them uh, are footnoted, which also no. drives me crazy. No, no. And they always are claiming to have uncovered something about U.S. history. You know, the true – listen, the resistance is to actual history of the United States. You can hear it and all the way – by the way, it is not just Fox News who is resistant to U.S. history. You can include sections of CNN and MSNBC and others, you know, there are people who never really want to face up to the full 500, 600 years of colonial history in the United States up to the present. And we're fighting over that. Maybe that doesn't have a lot to do with the, um, with the issue of, of abortion. I actually don't think there's as much division over abortion as it seems in the media. And I think that there is Um, a a balance being created between the forces for removing this right to reproductive health care with the people who thought this was settled, that they were not going to take away your ability to go get the reproductive health care you need. And I'm intentionally being broad because we're not just talking about abortion. We're talking about losing services that provide treatment to you um, when you are in going through a pregnancy that you absolutely need. But then there are other like things that um, people need for their bodies that they're being deprived from having access to as a result of this ruling from the Supreme Court. But we I mean, I I go back to last week. I know you probably talked about it, but the fact that Kansas didn't want to do anything. Very big deal. Uh, and you know, Thomas Frank, what's the matter with Kansas? We always talk about it being a bellwether. Maybe it's not anymore, but I, I do think it has a lot of currency and value in our politics and it should point the way. And I think that like, you know, I'm not sure how you easily resolve any of this, but I would just push back on anyone who had an issue with any of what is being taught in schools and say, I thought you guys were the ones who said, you know, we couldn't let feelings get in the way of all of this. I thought you were the ones who said that, like, you're tired of of woke people sitting around and saying that, you know, they don't want to be made to feel uncomfortable or something. Well, now they now that you feel uncomfortable, like they should have to just tolerate it. Like, I'm sorry you feel uncomfortable. I'm, we're not saying you did it. You weren't the ones that had slaves. But this happened in history, and we have to talk about it. You know, just as an aside, my uh, my ex-wife has a cousin who um, married a woman who's an evangelical Christian. And despite the fact that, that his uh, parents are public school teachers, um, the new daughter-in-law insisted on homeschooling their children. And she told me one, one day, oh, she was exhausted. She said she had been teaching a history class, right? And I said, oh, well, that's very interesting. What, uh, what aspect of history? And she said, well, you know, Moses and Noah and the Great Flood. And I said, oh, that kind of history. She was just telling Bible stories. Well, here we are all these years later. Her kids have, quote, graduated, unquote, none of them can read. None of them are prepared to enter the world as adults. Um, but they can vote just like you and I can. And they live in, you know, 
in the ruby red South. And uh, they're the ones who uh, seem to have control of the national agenda right now. And it scares the crap out of me. I, I thought it was funny when it happened. It's actually not at all funny. It's, it's quite dangerous uh, because a lot of the country is like that. Let me ask you one more question, uh, Kevin. Um, and I'm, it's going to be a two-parter. First, what are you hearing about uh, the plight of Julian Assange? Is there any news from the European Court of Human Rights? Uh, does the leadership race in the Conservative Party in the UK have any bearing on it? And what's the status of your uh, your latest book on Julian? Yeah, so I don't really know uh, where we are. I know that there are two appeals that have been submitted to the High Court of Justice. Uh, we're waiting to see the more uh, detailed versions from Assange's legal team on challenging it. But I, I believe I spoke to you a few weeks ago about what they're after, and, and that remains the, the case. You know, there's, they've been in Australia. Um, his People should know that Assange's family have been working the Australian parliament, and they learned yeah. that Niels Meltzer's book is apparently banned or considered protest material. What? And security confiscated the books. I don't know if you saw this. No. But anyway. I just, absolutely, talked, I just talked to him last week, too. It's absolutely incredible um, that uh, a parliamentarian had to actually go get the books back from security so they could be distributed to members of parliament to educate them on the Assange case because somehow they decided it was protest material. That's what they lo labeled it. And so that's happening. Now, my book is supposed to come out on February 21st, 2023. It's called Guilty of Journalism, The Political Case Against Julian Assange. And I am really proud of uh, of putting it all together. Um, I think that it's going to be a good book for the dark moment that we're facing. Yeah. I really believe that Julian Assange is coming to the U.S. to be put on trial. I can't believe I'm saying that to you because if you'd asked me back in January 4th, uh, 2021? 20, right. Yeah. Yeah. 2021. Uh, just two days before the January 6th events mm -hmm. at when Julian Assange had his life momentarily spared, I would have said to you that I thought there might be a silver lining here. Maybe he's going to be able to get off because his team did a good job of making the mental and physical health, health issues um, pronounced and, 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 and they, they told the judge about them, but it just didn't work out. And I think he's come to the U.S. Well, we'll be ready for him. Uh, Kevin Gustala, thank you so much for joining us. Kevin is a journalist and writer for shadowproof.com and co-host of the podcast, Unauthorized Disclosure. Check it out. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We'll be back after this short break. Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou, my co-host, and uh, we're going to get into a little bit of news from Latin America, in particular how, uh, how Ted Cruz has been very triggered by the inauguration <laughs> of Gustavo Petro as the new president <laughs> of Colombia and is making lots of threats that are maybe not as scary as uh, he would like us to believe, but we're going to see what our guest thinks about all that. We're joined by Sputnik News correspondent Wyatt Reed. Wyatt, how you doing? 
I'm good. How about yourself, Michelle? You know, a little sick, but can't complain. <laughs> I shouldn't have opened that up. <laughs> um, Wyatt, I want to talk about what is what is already resulting from Petro's inauguration as president of Colombia, which I think was just two days ago. Um, we have Senator Ted Cruz attempting to make aid to Colombia conditional on Colombia shaping its foreign policy and domestic policies to match uh, uh, Washington's goals. And uh, to this end, Cruz apparently has this new uh, caution bill that he's been talking up. And in discussing it, he said, I'm not interested in giving anti-American leftists American taxpayer dollars as aid. I believe our foreign policy should use carrots and sticks in order to incentivize other countries to behave in a way that benefits American interests and strengthens our friendship and in a way that discourages countries from seeking to harm and undermine the United States of America. He says, we don't support Marxists in Latin America and any leftist leader who chooses socialism will be held accountable by the United States and at a minimum will no longer be funded by U.S. taxpayers at a minimum. What an idiot. And so I want to talk about what Ted Cruz is actually proposing in this bill. But first, you know, I, I want to just remark upon U.S. legislators openly talking about punishing Latin American leaders and Latin American populations for choosing a type of government that we would prefer they don't. And I also want to point out that in this case, you have both sides of our very narrow political spectrum doing the same thing, right? You have Ted Cruz, a Republican, threatening Latin America, and we have Antony Blinken, a Democrat, uh, pretending he's not doing exactly this in Africa. And so before we get to more details, you know, what, what kind of reaction should Cruz's threats be met with? Well, <laughs> I will note there's a certain irony in you know, I think this is kind of a question for Colombians, right? This is something that, you know, Ted Cruz should not be deciding. And frankly, I shouldn't be deciding either. But I think, I think you know, the natural reaction would be to tell him to uh, stick it where the sun don't shine. Uh, frankly, I think just the level of imperial kind of arrogance and hubris that this uh, line of rhetoric uh, comes from, I mean, it, it pretty much speaks for itself. Uh, wh whether or not, you know, uh, this actually comes to pass, I, I frankly doubt that it will. The U.S. Uh, needs to maintain, you know, as far as, as, you know, its foreign policy thinkers are concerned, it needs to maintain Colombia uh, as, you know, sort of a bulwark against Venezuela. This was kind of how it was conceived over the past several decades, uh, if not, uh, you know, longer. Uh, Colombia has been basically kind of a bastion of U.S. militarism in the region. And I don't think that that's something that, the, you know, the U.S. military really wants to abandon uh, just because there's a new guy in office. I will say, uh, you know, this is certainly not the first time we've heard this kind of rhetoric from members of U.S. Congress in uh, March, I believe, Representative Maria Elvira Salazar in Florida, who is uh, notorious for being pretty hot-headed and very, very reactionary. Uh, she said, you know, even before he, Petro had come to office, that Colombians were in possibly the most dangerous moment the country had faced in modern history. She called Petro a thief, a terrorist, a Marxist. She said communism is a threat, and the greatest threat there is right now is Colombia. 
So, uh, you know, I think it is certainly notable that we, we are seeing a big uptick in terms of this anti-communist rhetoric coming out of the most right-wing sort of segment of, uh, of U.S. Congress. Uh, that, I think, is not a mistake. I think uh, they are perceiving that uh, even if Gustavo Petro isn't some firebrand, he's not, you know, Fidel Castro, he's not ready to take out the AK and, and you know, expropriate property by force, um, they still get the sense that he is not going to ultimately represent the interests of the U.S. Uh, and let alone, you know, the, the Colombian elites. Uh, and I think that uh, troubles quite a few people in the foreign policy establishment. Yeah, let me let me ask why I want to make this a little bit more specific, right? This bill is threatening to, um, uh, it, it threatens that if Petro attempts to cut back on defense coordination with the U.S., uh, the, the U.S. will send no more money for security cooperation. If he cuts back on cooperation on drugs trafficking, the bill will ensure he gets no more, more money for counter-narcotics efforts. I mean, I, I think... I don't want to be glib, right? But it is funny that Cruz is threatening to end the very cooperation that we've talked about many times has been so corrosive to Colombian democracy and Colombian society. And so at the risk of asking you to repeat yourself, I wonder, you know, if you think Petro will at least try to limit cooperation with the U.S. And then, as you say, it's not actually in the United States' interests to uh, to limit the funding for this quote unquote corrupt cooperation because we need Colombia as our sort of weird little quasi NATO outpost in Latin America, um, but if if he were to attempt that and if we were to actually limit some of that uh, funding, it seems like that would probably be good for Colombians. You know, I I don't think that that's what Petro is really asking for. That you know the incoming government is is asking for you know just like cut off all funding. I think they're really kind of aiming for a new framework of cooperation that's mutually beneficial as opposed to so lopsided, so one-sided as it historically has been. And we know for sure there will be uh, pretty major tweaks in terms of, you know, the military arrangements and in terms of the drug policy. Uh, this has been very clear from the speeches that we've heard so far from Gustavo Petro uh, he, he spoke recently, uh, I believe, uh, during his inauguration of the, he, uh, of the need for, you know, kind of a new, uh, a new dynamic in terms of the drug control policy. And, uh, you know, a quote from, from him here, he said, it's time for a new international convention that accepts that the war on drugs has failed. Of course, peace is possible, but it depends on current drug policies being substituted with strong measures that prevent consumption in developed societies, right? So he's really kind of twisting the dynamic here and, and inverting it, right? The old dynamic blamed the countries in the global South, in Latin America, where uh, this is produced, you know, where the cocaine actually comes from for the problem uh, at the root. And, you know, what Petro is saying, what many people in Latin America have been saying for decades now is that really the root of the problem is in the United States. It's with you, you gringos, because you guys are the ones that are ultimately consuming all this stuff. And, you know, the, the real problem here is with the demand. And that's where the honest of the, the, the problem uh, should be placed. Let's also talk a little bit about um, Panama. Uh, a couple weeks ago, there was a spate of articles about widespread protests, including road closures, uh, and demands for dialogue with the government over uh, a cost of living crisis, essentially. 
but there has been really very little English language reporting on it ever since. But it does seem like the protests were successful uh, to some degree, and the government uh, agreed last week to price controls on 72 essential products, uh, basically the, the food basket, as Panama defines it, and some cleaning and toiletries supplies. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about, uh, you know, what these protests achieved and, and how they did it. Yeah, we had several weeks of pretty uh, angry protests um, throughout Panama, focused especially on that on the Panama Highway, where so much of the commerce in that country uh, goes through. Uh, and they were similar in a lot of ways to a number of protest movements that we've been seeing uh, over the past months in Latin America, um, in countries, uh, especially like uh, Ecuador, where basically as a result of these costs of living increases that, um, you know, a, a lot of people would put on the supply chain disruptions. And I think a lot of mainstream media reports would, would blame, quote unquote, Putin's war on Ukraine uh, for all this. But, but as a result of basically the sanctions, I would argue, uh, the sanctions campaigns that have, uh, sanctions regimes that have limited Latin American countries' access to Russian fertilizer, uh, Russian fuel, uh, basically, uh, basically had all these uh, uh, ripple effects, right? Um, not just on the motorists, you know, who use the fuel, but on all parts of, of the economy. Um, and that's had, you know, uh, an obvious impact on uh, inflation, on cost of living increase, on people's ability to just get uh, food on their table to feed their kids. Um, and so you kind of see this, this I think, what you see in Panama is is the, an expression of the same kind of suffering uh, that you have on display uh, throughout much of Latin America. And you know, looking at protests worldwide, you could you could argue that this this uh, you know things in Sri Lanka, for example. I think a lot of of the uprest, uh, sorry, the the unrest that we're witnessing these days uh, has its basis mainly in the economic factors. I also wanted to talk about um, Cuba, a story that we haven't mentioned, I guess because it happened on Friday, but uh, Cuba is struggling to contain a fire that started on Friday in its main oil terminal. We have dozens of firefighters missing. We have more than 120 injured. We have one uh, known to have died. And while Mexico and Venezuela have sent teams to help and Russia, Nicaragua, Argentina, and Chile offered material aid, Cuba's wealthiest neighbor and very close neighbor has offered technical advice. Uh, and so I wonder, you know, if you want to talk about what Cuba's recovery is going to look like under this longstanding blockade that the U.S. continues to enforce. Right. Well, the blockade is certainly going to complicate that recovery. And, and it may even be a bit premature to get into discussions about the recovery. I mean, the blaze is still happening. Uh, just mm -hmm. a fourth tank uh, was subsumed into that fire. Another another tank at the Matanzas super tanker base there in western Cuba caught fire. And that uh, brings the total now to four tanks affected by that blaze. Uh, this all started after the facility was struck by lightning on Friday. Um, and then you had subsequent uh, explosions, multiple explosions over the weekend. And according to one report, that first tank was around 50% capacity full uh, contained close to 900,000 cubic feet of fuel. The second tank was full. So we're talking about uh, about 
half a million uh, barrels in those first two tanks alone, somewhere around a fifth of the 2.4 million barrel total storage capacity they have at that facility. Um, so this is a big deal. Uh, there's a possibility that Cuba may be forced to move to floating storage uh, while these crews race to put out the flames. Most of the oil that is imported into Cuba comes through Matanzas. So it's the only terminal in the country that's able to receive these large oil tankers. So it kind of serves as an energy hub for the country. And, you know, all of this coming as we saw, you know, just days ago, the, the government announced uh, that these blackouts that have been occurring across Cuba are now going to, uh, uh, to uh, affect Havana as well. So it's a pretty serious energy situation uh, that's gripping Cuba today. Uh, certainly a, a very poor time for something like this to happen. And I've seen a number of campaigns uh, calling on the U.S. to uh, relief to offer some sanctions relief to the Cuban people, especially during you know this moment of crisis. I know uh, you know. Meanwhile, people are kind of sitting on their their thoughts and prayers and hoping that the U.S. will come to its senses and you know become discover its consciousness or something. Meanwhile, obviously, you know you are getting help from uh, the Mexicans, from the Venezuelans. Another tanker from Russia is uh, set to arrive in Matanzas next week. Um, so, you know, they're basically going to be racing to <clears throat> isolate those tanks, put them out, um, and hopefully have uh, uh, the ability to refuel uh, the tanks. Eventually, obviously, those four are going to have to be trashed. Um, and, you know, in the meantime, it's, it's just going to be a lot more difficult for them uh, to store that uh, gas, that oil at that facility for the time being. Uh, it's certainly quite a challenge and obviously makes it all the more urgent that uh, these life-threatening sanctions by the West, by the U.S. especially, be lifted as soon as possible. Yeah, I mean, the U.S. never wants to miss an opportunity to make uh, ordinary people suffer for choosing a government that doesn't uh, have American interests at its heart, uh, but instead theirs. Wyatt, before we let you go, I, I wanted to get your thoughts on this uh, latest twist in the battle to return Venezuela's stolen gold. And of course, not all the gold stolen by conquistadors, but the modern day hijacking of more than a billion dollars worth of Venezuelan gold that had been stored in the Bank of England. Uh, the Bank of England has maintained that despite uh, votes, whatever democracy in Venezuela, uh, that it is their declaration that Juan Guaido and not elected president Nicolas Maduro is the real head of the Venezuelan government. And that is their justification for not handing this gold over to the people who are actually running Venezuela. And John and I mentioned on the show briefly last week that a UK high court had once again ruled against Maduro. Uh, Maduro. But all of this, this whole case really hinges on the UK government maintaining this fiction that it really believes Guaido is the head of the Venezuelan government. And so Maduro's side is now bringing out evidence that indeed the government of the UK is dealing with the Maduro government as representatives of Venezuela in a legitimate sense, issuing them visas and addressing Maduro as the president in correspondence. Um, I think Maduro's people brought out some letters from the queen in which she addresses Maduro as the president of Venezuela. And so, you know, 
this might matter in this court case if we expected UK courts to exhibit any integrity. Uh, I don't think that expectation is is necessarily justified. But I, I did want to get your thoughts on this saga and the the contortions the U.S. and the U.K. are subjecting themselves to to continue to deal with the Maduro government, very obviously, while pretending they aren't and holding on to this money. Yeah, I think it's it's a level of shamelessness that uh, it's hard to hard to imagine. You certainly couldn't invent this yourself if you wanted to. Uh, these letters, obviously, the ones you're referring to, I mean, they're, they're pretty clear. They bear uh, the signature of the Queen of England. They refer uh, to Maduro as, you know, your excellency, his excellency, Nicolas Maduro Moreno, president of the Bolivarian Republic of Venezuela. Uh, it's clearly a phrase that, you know, has been used by the Queen. Uh, these are referring to specific letters that were sent, I believe, um, under the government of uh, Barbados, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, it was, it was it's, a, it's a, a tropical country that, you know, so, so we're talking about a, a kingdom or rather we're talking about a, a nation that is a commonwealth of the United Kingdom. So it's not a direct uh, direct letter from the United Kingdom, but we're talking about the United Kingdom, obviously, at the end of the day. Uh, that is their determination. Uh, that was their determination at the time of these letters, certainly. Um, and, you know, just in terms of the recognition of Juan Guaido, this is uh, just a barely passable legal fiction. Um, much of the world, you know, the United States talked quite a bit about how so-called uh, supposed 50 countries had recognized Juan Guaido's so-called interim presidency. Uh, probably around 10 of those, I think, have, have since walked that back. Uh, around half a dozen countries in Latin America have switched recognition uh, just in terms of the countries over the past, um, you know, two or three years where you've had a, a number of leftist presidents come in uh, to office and they have not recognized uh, Juan Guaido. The, this man is not uh, getting more and more popular. He's doing the opposite. Um, and so, you know, you really have to look to the United States. You have to look to the UK to find out who it is that is uh, continuing to believe in this man, or at the very least propping him up. Um, and that's, you know, really how it's been since the beginning, but it's only getting more obvious um, that, you know, this is really kind of kind of a sham. They just wanted to steal these several billion uh, dollars worth of gold that they have in the Bank of England. They were looking for whatever excuse um, that they could find to do so. Um, and now, even though that that excuse is no longer even really considered, uh, even by many of his party members, to be uh, the so-called interim president of Venezuela, uh, that no longer seems to matter to them. It's uh, it's a shame, but you know, here we are, 2022 Venezuelan relations with the West. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it would be comedy, right? It would be comedy if uh, the people of Venezuela couldn't actually use that money, you know, and that is the that is the real shame. And it's shameful, the lack of reporting, I think, in the United States on on these antics. We're going to have to leave it there with Wyatt Reed. Wyatt, thanks for joining us. Where do you want our listeners to go to find more of the work that you do? You can check me out on Twitter. My handle is at WyattReed13. That's at W-Y-A-T-T-R-E-E-D-1-3. 
I'm also on Telegram, uh, and I believe I'm on Substack now. I haven't uh, messed with it too oh, much right. recently, but <laughs> you, can, you can find me there too. A new one, Why it's all over the place. All right, thanks for talking to us, Wyatt. I'm sure we'll uh, catch up with you again soon. We're going to go straight into... Thanks. We're going to go straight into some headlines here, uh, John. Breaking news from, what, maybe an hour ago? You, I Obviously, yep. you saw this because I sent it to you. The House Ways and Means Committee has won their uh, court case to get access to Donald Trump's tax returns. Yes. So that's, that's a pretty big deal. They're very excited about it. Yeah, yeah I mean, they are. This fight has been, much- been going for years. Years they've been seeking these tax returns. And here's the thing. I don't want to be too cynical or pessimistic, but it does seem like all of these uh, legal cases against Donald Trump, these battles to get access to this or that, they do. They drag on for years and years and very little seems to have come of any of them so far. Yeah. So how excited should people be about this? I know everyone is, you know, every other week. This is more, perhaps more the case when Trump was actually in power, but it was every other week the walls were closing in, the house of cards was about to crumble, et cetera, et cetera. Right. I don't know. Uh, what, what, how should we respond to this, John? Well, you know, I don't think anybody cares anymore. Yeah. I, 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 I don't. I think they cared five years ago uh, during the, the 2016 campaign. Um, five and a half, six years ago, I guess it is now. I don't think anybody cares if Donald yeah. Trump really is a billionaire or how much Donald Trump actually pays in taxes, I don't care. Six years ago, I wanted I, to know. Now, I don't who, who. I feel like I should know the answer to this question, but uh, what's going on with any of these uh, investigations or lawsuits in Manhattan? Is that, is that, are they just sort of continuing to quietly investigate? I mean, uh, there was one, didn't, one of them was dropped yeah, or recommended of, to be dropped? That's right. One of them was dropped, uh, and which was a political decision uh, by the new uh, district attorney. I think everything is still ongoing, but apparently very quietly. I mean, if you have money, right, you can put up roadblocks, right? Oh my and gosh, you can extend yes, these processes. So we know this. And Donald Trump does, you know... He does have money to throw around to put in the way of these legal wheels. So it doesn't mean that nothing is coming. But I, I will say, I mean, when that lawsuit, that was dropped, I was surprised. Uh, I think some of the testimony has not been as explosive as people want it to be. I mm-hmm. think some of the, even the uh, allegations of financial crimes, I, I guess, are not as compelling as right. I certainly would have expected. And so, you know, maybe this is just something that takes a really long time. Uh, but yeah, I think, I think. It is possible that public interest has waned a little bit. And also, uh, maybe they, maybe in this case, too, they're not really going to find what they were looking for. See, I mean, hard to imagine that they are not going to find quite a lot of tax fraud. Right, right. right. But, but this, this comes back to prosecutorial discretion again. Uh, you remember when I made this trip to Greece at the request of the Greek government because I had, I had stumbled on this, this massive fraud and they wanted me to to testify. And I did that. This was last October. I testified against this guy. They referred the information to the FBI. My attorney and I went to see the FBI and they said, you know what? If it doesn't have the word terrorism involved with it, we're really not interested. And after all these years and all these roadblocks with Donald Trump, are they really interested in going to the mat 
over something that may or may not be a crime, and if it is a crime, it's kind of a minor crime, and it's got these political uh, uh, things attached to it. it I, I think people just don't care anymore. Uh, I guess we should mention Glenn Kessler, since that was the the gun we referred to yeah. in the first act of this show. It's actually not. I wish it was a little bit more exciting, folks, but Glenn Kessler is being dragged over the coals a little bit for playing a role in um, – you know, perhaps, well, initially uh, attempting to discredit or at least cast doubt on the story about the 10-year-old right. who had to travel out of state to get an abortion. He was one of the voices pointing out that, well, this is only, it's, it's only sourced to a single source, who of course was the doctor who said that she had provided the abortion. Right. And people say like, that's a sort of Yes, it's a single source, but that's a very we would treat that as a very credible source. <laughs> uh, yeah, so he's being dragged over the coals for um, for kind of playing into that the whole narrative that was suggesting that the story was made up, made up nowhere in the United States would you have a ten year old who's you know become pregnant through uh, obviously an illegal act and have to who could imagine that. Um, and so, you know, any opportunity to make Glenn Kessler looks like, look like a fool is, uh, you know, welcome to me. Yeah. You know, when I was arrested in 2012, Glenn Kessler called me a bad actor in the Washington <sighs> Post. And I've never forgiven this clown. I don't care how important he is over there. You know, what goes yeah. around comes around. He deserves to be it's slapped real- down a peg or two. Every single day. And also, we don't have a ton of time, but did you see that Gabby Pettito's family has filed a $50 million wrongful death suit against Utah cops? Yes. $50 million. You know, the cops need to uh, need to answer for their their failure to do anything to protect her. And so maybe now we'll get some answers. I think this this must stem from when they were they were stopped. That's right. Um, right, they were stopped by the side of the road. They were obviously having yep. some kind of altercation, and the cops just sort of went, "Okay, well, go go along here." So yep. yeah, I guess her her parents are saying they could have and should have interrupted the chain of events that led to her death. I also didn't know John. You know that he tried to in his diary he tried to say that he had killed her as an act of mercy. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, it's so gross. Yeah, he oh. said she like fell down in a creek and she was badly injured and he couldn't carry her to safety. So he killed her. It's just oh obviously, God. obviously. He was trying lie. to come up with a with a uh, an alibi. Yeah. So we'll see where this lawsuit goes. I think we're going to have to leave it there. Yeah, I want to say thanks to everybody. Out of time, ahead, unfortunately. Yeah. Thanks yeah. to Jackie Lukeman, Kim Keenan, Kevin Gastala and Wyatt Reed. Thanks to the whole tech team here uh, at Sputnik and to Ray Valencia, our talented producer. Uh, Thanks for joining us for Political Misfits here on Radio Sputnik. We're going to have a full show for you tomorrow, so come back. We'll see you then.